Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're down in verse number 9 and 10, and we're looking at the second thy petition by which we are to pray. For the scripture says in verse number 9, after this manner pray ye the first petition and also the first thy petition is our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we looked at that in detail last week. This week, we're going to take this next phrase we find in verse number 10, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. And we look through scriptures and of course, as you might would get various uh, Bible study helps on this. The consideration of what God's kingdom is, is to say the least, very intriguing. Uh, the idea of God's kingdom is mentioned much in the Old Testament, and there are many times that there's a lot of speculation today as to what God's kingdom is. Some of it is right, and some of it uh, doesn't pass the litmus test of being biblical. Uh, in order to grasp really what's coming here in verse number 10, to understand how our prayer should be, because the petition here is we're asking God, thy kingdom come. And if we're going to do so, I think it behooves us to take a little bit of time this morning and look at uh, getting some type of understanding of what God's kingdom is, and then seeking to see what or how that is applied to our prayer life. Let me give you a list of views by which the kingdom of God is many times used. I have seven of them, and again, not all of them are biblical. I'm just giving you the expression that you might come across. But when it comes to understanding, some would, specifically Jewish folks, might look at this, and when they say the kingdom of God, they mean it in a sense of a national kingdom, a kingdom literally upon the earth of Jewish people at this very hour. So in one sense, you could look at that and somebody would say, well, the kingdom of God, obviously what they're praying for is a Zionistic fervor. That is the establishment of a Jewish kingdom over which had a Jewish king, a nationalistic kingdom, and not in keeping with a millennial kingdom. There's two separate things there. Another one that is often used is the millennial kingdom, the time at which uh, the government of God will be established after his second coming and which will issue in or usher in a thousand-year kingdom where he will sit on the throne of David. Uh, and the Scriptures has much to say about a millennial kingdom. Then some would look at the kingdom of God and they say, well, it, it's a celestial kingdom. And by that, it's really heaven itself. Heaven itself. Some would look at it, and this is really a Romanish way to look at it, but they would, speaking of the kingdom of God, they would look at it in ecclesiastical sense. Uh, the kingdom of God being... A, a, a corporate type church here on earth that does God's will. Uh, for historical sake, when I say Romanish, I'm referencing that's how the popes came up with the, what used to be called the Holy Roman Empire. And they would say this is God's kingdom. And the head of God's kingdom would in that time, as they looked at it, not as we look at it, but the head of that kingdom would be the pope. And the capital city would be wherever the Pope reside, which today and has been for over a thousand years, the Vatican City. Um, and so that's a Romanish way to look at it. I would actually say that some of the reformers were in agreement with that. Luther and Calvin in particularly, they had their own kingdom set up that pushed back against the Roman Empire. It's through this is where you get the Anglican Church, Henry VIII, saw the kingdom of God, 
established his own religion, the Anglican Church, and guess who the head of the Anglican Church is? The king. Now, I don't think this passes the litmus test, as with some of these others, but nonetheless, that's how some would look at it and say, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's the idea of a corporate church, if I can put it in that emphasis, entity, by which God executes His will. Some would look at it and call it a spiritual kingdom. Now, this is getting a little bit out there. It's the idea uh, that is a kingdom within you. That is, it's not found in any existing uh, society, but rather it's an inspiration. It's not an institute. Uh, this sense of a spiritual kingdom, uh, really it's a calling of you being a better you, a kingdom of grace in which will bring about a kingdom of holiness in you. So it's not a kingdom at all. It's really uh, uh, an allegory in many regards. Some would look at it and say the kingdom of God is a moral kingdom. In reference to that, uh, not being able to see God, for John 4 says God is a spirit, they would look at this and say, well, the kingdom of God really is God's moral decree. So God's kingdom is when I obey that moral decree. It's the morality of God's law in the heart of men, and that's as far as it goes. Some, and this is probably the most liberal among them, would see the kingdom of God in a liberal or social sense. That is... Uh, that the kingdom of God is a progressive social uh, organization, institution, if you will, that seeks to improve mankind and which has society as first place. And therefore, in this, this social-type kingdom, the church is a social order which will do all in its power to cause bad men to do good things. Now, the reason I'm giving you all these isn't because there's a test afterwards, but I want you to know how individuals, some more dedicated than others, some believing the Bible, some not, but when they gauge this idea of praying for thy kingdom come, that is an expansive topic by which there's a number of ways that individuals, rightly or wrongly, have looked at the kingdom of God, but it bears this witness what in fact is the kingdom of God. Why should I pray for it? Why does it even matter? Well, one point it matters is because it's to be the second most related petition in my prayers. The Hebrews used to say of this, any prayer that does not invoke the kingdom of God should not truly be considered a prayer at all. So there's obviously a level of pertinence to it. When you look at the scriptures, so let's take a moment to find the kingdom of God. When you look at the scriptures, there are some essential elements you might even call them some concrete ideals by which God's kingdom is described. And I'm just going to give you three of them. When you study out the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, there's three glowing concrete ideals. Number one, God's kingdom has a de facto ruler. In fact, he should use a different word than kingdom if there is not a de facto ruler. That is a ruler that has authority and power. Number two, when you reference God's kingdom, a second uh, ideal, if you will, is that there has to be a definitive realm. There has to be subjects that are ruled. Uh, you know, back in pre-World War II Europe and really post-World War I, you had a lot of deposed kings. And they went about with their titles. Uh, like, for instance, during World War II, uh, the former uh, really was the descendant of Wilhelm II of Germany he still had emperor-type titles of royal descent and sometimes in court and proper areas was referred to as his majesty. But he had no realm at all. 
It was titular only. Why? He did not have authority. He did not have power. So he wasn't a king. And he didn't have a de facto realm. It was just a title of respect that was given to him. When you look at the kingdom of God, there is a ruler and a realm. But then putting it all that way, if you're going to speak of the kingdom of God as you go through the scriptures biblically, there's a third part. We'll call it your rulership. That is the exercise by which the ruler uses authority and power in his realm. And when we speak of the kingdom of God, it has to have all three of those. So going back to our seven illustrations I gave you, that would discount the overwhelming majority of them. Because it does not take in consideration there is a ruler, a realm, and there is active rulership. So with regards to God's kingdom that has a ruler and has a realm and has rulership, how is it described in scriptures, this kingdom of God? Now that's a good question, and sometimes it can be a confusing question. I'm going to look at a number of passages here. You can turn to them, and I'd really encourage you to take some notes to look at this. But when you're thinking about the kingdom of God, sometimes there's a series of differences of description that the Scripture uses in referencing the kingdom of God. And sometimes they might even seem somewhat contradictory at the first. Let me give you a list of these. For instance, when we speak of the kingdom of God, looking through the Old Testament, it could be said, as the psalmist does in the 10th Psalm, God's kingdom is eternal. It's always existed. Listen to Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever. Does that leave any glimpse of shadow of turning that somehow there is not yet a kingdom of God? That's what the psalmist says. He is king forever. Yet equally in speaking of the kingdom of God, Daniel writes something with profundity. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, he describes a definite historical historical beginning with man. In Daniel 2, the scripture says, And in the days of these kings shall God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. Which is it? Is it an eternal kingdom, or will one day be established as a kingdom? You see the apparent contradiction? Let me give you a couple more. In one sense, the scripture talks about the kingdom of God being universal, without which no living thing can exist. In the 103rd Psalm in the 19th verse, the scripture says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens. His kingdom ruleth over all. That's pretty expansive, isn't it? Over all, that's the heavens, the earth, and the things under earth. That's the air, the elements of time, space, and matter. He ruleth over all. It's universal, the Psalms describes in the 103rd Psalm. Yet Isaiah the prophet describes it as being ruled on earth. In Isaiah 24, verse 23, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the, horde of, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before the ancients glorious. Well, wait a minute now. If he ruleth over all and in heaven, what meaneth it also by it being local that one day he's going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem? And speaking of his kingdom, another one of these would be the fact that the Scripture describes God's kingdom as being ruled by God directly, by God the Father directly with no intermediary at all. 
The psalmist writes in the 59th Psalm, Consume them in wrath, consume them, that they may not be. Let them know that God ruleth. Yet in Psalm 2, there's a rule of a mediator. Someone in betwixt God and the subjects, the realm. In Psalm 2 it says, He sitteth in the heavens, yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Is it God the Father that rules, or will there be an intermediary that he will set up? In one sense, the kingdom of God is wholly futuristic. Zechariah 14 and verse 9, And the Lord shall be a king over all the earth, shall be, future tense, shall be a king over all the earth. In that day there shall be, uh, be the Lord, and his name is one. That's futuristic. Yet equally, the psalmist in the 29th Psalm declares it a present reality. The Lord sitteth king forever. That does not sound futuristic. That sounds present tense. And speaking of the kingdom of God, Daniel writes that it would have an unconditional rule out of the sovereignty of his own person, meaning he's going to do whatever he wants to do. Listen to this, Daniel 4 and verse 34. And all the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing, He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Unconditional sovereign rule. He's going to do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do, how he wants to do his kingdom of God. Yet the psalmist in the 89th Psalm references God's kingdom as being established or based upon covenants. My mercy, 89th Psalm, verse 28, will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. This is why some, when looking at the kingdom of God, note a difference between the kingdom of God in which a future Messiah will come and the kingdom of God over which abides in heaven the kingdom of the earth. Essentially, the Scriptures offers a reasonable explanation to all of these as every alleged contradiction in Scripture will give. The fact is, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different descriptions of the exact same thing. These past contradictions I gave you, these five of it being established yet being future, being in heaven yet on earth. They're describing the same thing. Yet, they are two different aspects. Two different, if you will, timings of it. God's kingdom is seen as universal. That is the extent of His rule. That is God's dominion. It embraces, as James Orr put it, uh, the, the editor of International Bible Encyclopedia, he writes it up this way, God's rule, the extent of His rule is the dominion of God. It embraces all objects, persons, events, all doings of individuals and nations, all operations and changes of nature and issue, uh, of history are without exception. In one sense, God's kingdom is universal. All things come under it. God's kingdom can also be seen as a mediatorial kingdom, a mediator, needing a mediator. It has a method to which he will rule. Let me give you just a few things about God's kingdom and its universal, its extent, its broadness. Because I think it's important to see this, to truly describe what we're referring to when we pray, Thy kingdom come. 
Note this extent of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. The scripture says that in referencing God's kingdom, it is without interruption. That's a powerful one to think of. It exists through time. Someone once asked the question, said, uh, which existed first, God or essence of material? Why is it that God seems to be beyond the scope of everything we know as human? You know, everything we define humanity is, you know, it's time, space, and matter. God sits outside of all of that. He has put it in its own existence. In fact, you find the truth in, what is it, Genesis 1? In the beginning, that's time. God created the heaven, that's space, and what? Earth, that's matter. God put all of that together and all three of those have to exist at the same time for you and I to be able to live and breathe and have our moving. moving. God is universal in extent. He extends and exists throughout interruption throughout all time. The psalmist says in the 145th Psalm, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So the dominion and kingdom of God existed before Genesis chapter 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How is the breadth of God's kingdom? It has existed without interruption. And speaking of God's kingdom, and I'm using the word universal to show that extent, it includes all that exists in space and time. Verse Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 12, the scripture records, Thou reignest over all. Because of such, there's divine control. And God exercises His divine control in two ways. Sometimes He uses a providential means. By that which I mean is He uses the nature in which He has established to accomplish His will. That's providence. For instance, uh, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 21 It's an interesting word. It kind of buttresses this. The idea there, Moses is by the Red Sea, the children of Israel about to cross. And what happened? He held out his hand. The scripture says in verse 21, there was a great east wind came and separated the water and they walked across on dry ground. What happened? God used the established nature that he had made to accomplish his will. That's often the case. The scripture says in the psalmist, fire, hail, snow, vapor, and stormy wind fulfilling his word. It's an amazing thing to consider. So at sometimes God can control because his kingdom exists before the dawn, the creation of humanity. His kingdom exists. He can use all the things occurring in nature to accomplish his will. That's providence. He can bring about flood and water, and rain, and wind. He can accomplish his uh, his will by causing it to rain as it was in the days of Noah. He can accomplish his will as he promised in James chapter 5 where to Elijah it would go to space of three and a half years and it would rain not. Sometimes God exercises his divine control within that glorious uninterrupted expanse of all that exists by using providential means, meaning he controls the laws of nature.
Yet sometimes his divine control can be exercised by supernatural means. What do you mean by that? I mean by signs and wonders. I mean in, in ways in which cannot absolutely be considered. You might would consider this miracles. He's supernatural means when he brought Lazarus up from the grave. The fellow's been in the grave these days. How is it he lives again? That's supernatural. He can use supernatural means as he came. And he tabernacled in flesh the Lord Jesus. And they brought him five loaves and two fishes and he fed the 5,000. You tell me what providential means he used to do that. That's a miracle. That's why we reference it a miracle. At once he looked at Peter to accomplish his means and to show his person and power. Peter walked on water. Tell me the means by which he did so. The psalmist, or rather Daniel says in Daniel chapter 6 verse 27, he worked his signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. It's the kingdom of God. It, its extent is beyond that of humanity. All is under its control. God works in it by providential means and by supernatural means. It exists regardless of the attitudes of its subjects. You know, we think about our society, we just had an election. And you think about elections, and you think about how there's sometimes decisions that political people make, and that one day they're going to give an account and not be elected. I heard that happens in some countries, not in ours, but in some countries it happens. You realize God's kingdom is established regardless of whether or not his subjects are in favor of it? Whether or not they get these petitions? Was that a couple of years ago, the White House had a hotline? I, I think it's probably six, seven years ago. And they'll get like 10,000 or 1,000 signatures. They would address a matter. Do you remember this? It's since been taken down. Because there were some things that a lot of people agreed on that they wanted the federal government to do that the federal government was not obligated to do. Well, God's kingdom exists regardless of the attitude of his subjects. Listen again to Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Do you remember as a child you did something wrong in your authority? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a grandparent or a teacher. What are you doing? Calls you to pause from doing it? Calls you to rethink the matter? God's kingdom is not like that. His decretive will. It means what he's declared is in place. He's going to accomplish it whether you like it or I like it, whether you don't like it, whether you do like it, or whether you pull a bunch of people and they come into agreement that he shouldn't do the things he ought to do. Who are you? God is in control. He has set in motion all that is for his glory and magnitude. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God ultimately is administered through his Son. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ that should have preeminence, the scripture says he is before all things and by him do all things consist. That's a pretty powerful statement about the kingdom of God. Look in your text then in Matthew chapter 6. Drop your eyes to verse number 10. You're to pray, hallowed be thy name. Verse 10, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. The psalmist again said, Thy kingdom ruleth over all. But the Lord is saying when you pray, pray like this, Thy kingdom come. I thought it was already here. 
I thought we just talked about the fact that in the beginning, in that eternal past of His kingdom, He created time, space, and matter. And it exists now. And who shall say, stay His hand? Who shall ask Him, what do you do? And He can, he can interact as He does. Everything's under preacher. We just said this. Why are we praying for a kingdom to come that's already here? Now you see the confusion. So some that have a hyper-Jewish view might look at this and say, well, I know what that, that's to the Jew there. And the kingdom that he's talking about, no doubt, is, is just the Jewish kingdom. That's what it is. I think that's the case. But he's certainly in agreement that he's not talking about the kingdom come, in a sense, the universal kingdom of God, that expansive kingdom that already is. You see, God's kingdom had already come. His will was being done. Ephesians chapter 1, He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. As it relates to this universal magnitude of the kingdom of God, it is the duty of man not to pray for it, but to recognize and submit to it. So what does He mean? Thy kingdom come. I think with all three of these thy petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I believe there's a prepositional phrase there at the end of verse 10 that it bears us great understanding. If it take just a moment for it. He says, in earth as it is in heaven. Now last week when we were speaking on hallowed be thy name. Now let me ask you a question. Is God's name hallowed in heaven? Decretive. Absolutely. Is it hallowed on earth? Not in totality, it isn't. Let me ask you a question about the third one. Thy will be done. Is God's will done in heaven? Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. Is God's will done on earth in the heart of every individual? Absolutely not. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter. Speaking of God not being slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering not willing that any should... You know, he's talking about dying, being in perdition and judgment. That's what perish means. It's not God's will that anyone would die without Him and be under His holy justice. What is it that God would have? God would have all men come to repentance and salvation. Will all men do so? No. Ergo, it is to be said that God's will is not in totality done in the hearts and lives of every individual on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven... Everything that is performed is performed according to His divine and holy will. So now let's take the sandwich. Those were the outsides. Look at the inside. Thy kingdom come. God's kingdom in heaven is present. He ruleth over all. He dwells beyond space, time, and matter. All that is performed is according to His sovereign will. He can use natural means or supernatural means to execute it. His Son, Jesus Christ, is at the very center of it. But well, what about on earth? 
See, there's one grand distinction between heaven and earth. A profound difference, if you will, between exercising God's rule in heaven and that on earth. And namely and chiefly, it's rebellion and sin that exists on earth. And it's not known that way in any other place that God has created. But here on earth is sin and rebellion. And these matters need to be dealt with in a way specifically to correct them. So moving beyond the extent, you have to deal with the method by which God's kingdom comes on earth. And that's where we get this idea of a mediatorial, a mediatorial kingdom, a mediator. One by which achieves this extent. He speaks, and it's really delivered in this final word here in verse 10, thy kingdom come. This come is speaking of one that would come, a redemption that would come, and put down at all last rebellion and sin and bring in the kingdom and the will of God, not only as it is in heaven, but that it might also, as it was in heaven, be on earth. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and following, speaking of this, this completion of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And when that happens... When God's kingdom on earth occurs, just like it is in heaven, they, the distinctions, will be completely dissolved because they are fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, note this. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But after man, or rather but every man, in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, listen to these words, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he should put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which did put all things under him. Verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What's he saying? There's some things that Jesus Christ has to bring to conclusion. That's why we're praying, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. To pray, Thy kingdom come, is essentially saying, in a very uh, powerful refrain, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come quickly. That's what he's talking of. The King of Kings... It's none other than Jesus Christ. The subjects are Israel and the nations. The chosen people fulfilling their missions according to the election of God assigned unto them at the beginning of the time in which they were promised to be a blessing to all people in Genesis chapter 12. The center of this kingdom will be Jerusalem. The means of its establishment will be coming of Jesus Christ in a very visible fashion at His appearing. This is what Isaiah is referring to 
in chapter 11, in verse 1 through 6, when he talks about this rod and stem out of Jesse, this branch that will grow up, that the Spirit of the Lord would be him. Um, he goes on that he would with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. This is that ideal king in which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet in the 42nd chapter when he said, My servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. This is that kingdom that Daniel referenced in Daniel chapter 7. When he says to him was given glory and dominion and a kingdom that all people's nation and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. The Lord is saying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as he will in verse number 10. That kingdom is the idea of when he, the kingdom of God is established not only in the heavenlies, but when sin and rebellion and that last enemy, death, is done away with and the kingdom of God is directly established upon earth. To pray, thy kingdom come, is to pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. My, so often when we kneel before the God of heaven, we fail to consider his kingdom. That Jesus Christ is in fact the head of this kingdom in one regard that his kingdom should be prayed for. His coming to earth needs to come and that it will bring with it a definite sense of crisis in human history and that it will not be a long process of evolution. What do you mean by that? You know, there are some that look at the kingdom of God. Listen. This is theological frustration right here. There are some that look at the kingdom of God and think, man, if we could just do enough good, if we just have enough hope, we just have enough brotherhood. We just have enough peace. And God will come back and we've built a kingdom for him. You can't build God's kingdom. I say something. You can't build God's church either. Matthew chapter 16 said, I'll build my church. But I wouldn't want God's kingdom to be my responsibility to build. You know why? Because in my flesh there dwelleth no. God's kingdom will be built directly through the work of Jesus Christ. The greatest adversary on this earth to God's kingdom, and in many regards as we're talking about on Sunday nights to Christian living, is the kingdom of this present evil world. It lies in total opposition to the God of heaven. To pray, thy kingdom come, is to pray for supernatural activity. I think there's at least three descriptions of what it means when a believer prays, thy kingdom come. I think this speaks firstly of a supernatural conquest. John chapter 18, the Lord speaks of this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And all God's people said, it's a great thing. This world, as its created point of view, is under the curse of sin. In Romans chapter 8, in speaking of the existence of this world, it says that it groaneth. 
This earth, you, you want to talk about man-made climate change. Well, I can tell you what, the groaning of this earth has had a lot to do with man's decision. Way back in the Garden of Eden. The entrance of sin by man impacted the earth in a very visible way. In fact, this earth as you and I know it is not the same as the one God created in Genesis chapter 1. It went through a cataclysmic change in Genesis chapter 6. It went through a change, cataclysmic, in Genesis chapter 3 when now roses began to bear four thorns. Now where there's travail in childbirth. Now where there's a level of sickness where there was not known sickness. And now the earth continues to grow under the presence of sin that was brought on by my forefathers. His kingdom is not of this world. We do not advance God's kingdom by trying to improve human society. Many today will talk about a classical education. And, and I'm mostly for education. Under the confines of biblical truth. Because the pursuit of education without biblical truth is making each child a little more clever of a devil. That's why we need biblical truth to book in and, and really surround any education that is received. But it's not our job to advance the kingdom of God by making society better. And some would say we need a classical education. If we just get enough folks educated a certain way, society will be able to think and reason. You know why society can't think and reason? Because it's chosen to receive another truth. There's not a cure for that save the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Availing all of poverty, some would say, would bring about the kingdom. Well, listen, the Lord said, the poor you have with you, always. Advances in modern science and health care, and there's some good things to say about that. That won't usher in the kingdom. But be honest, 100 years ago, not even 100 years ago, that's where a lot of Christians began to go. Let's have all these schools. And the motive started out right. Let's have all the hospitals and we can alleviate the poor. We can help all this. Has that made the world better? Is God's kingdom closer because of those decisions than they were at that time? Has that helped God usher in His kingdom? I think not, for His kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. The best of activity that we have is only having the attempt or the ability to resist corruption upon this earth which will ultimately come. But when the Lord returns, He will establish a perfect kingdom. It will dovetail in perfect harmony with the kingdom of God and God's plan. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for a supernatural conquest and judgment and expiation of all evil in the presence of his glorious and holy might. It's a supernatural conquest. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for a supernatural citizenship. Philippians chapter 3, our conversation, the scripture says, is in heaven. And we're conversation 
a Greek word there. It's the root from the English word which we get our politics. My citizenship is the essence. It's in heaven. And one cannot become a citizen of heaven by any activity they make here on earth. The kingdom of God is past. It included Abraham. It included Isaac. In context of Matthew chapter 6, it was present. The kingdom of God included the disciples. And for you and I, in reference from the, project, uh, the uh, position of Matthew chapter 6, it's future. And if God tarries His coming, it will continue as well. There's only one way through which an individual can become part of the kingdom of God. And how is that? By the new birth. Matthew chapter 18 speaks of this. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray that there will be new converts. To pray thy kingdom come, there'll be new sons of God, children of God. There'll be new heavenly citizens. In a sense, to pray for the kingdom of God is to pray for the conversion of souls. Now I think of the hymnist that penned these words. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. To pray for the kingdom of God to come is to pray that we would shine as His lights in this world, that others may know the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a responsibility of believers. I think of Philippians chapter 2. He talks about that you might shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. What's the distinction? At the moment I became washed in the blood of the Lamb, at the moment I became a child of God, I became a citizen of heaven. And to bow the knee as it were, and to submit myself in prayer, and pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, is to motivate me to pray more often for the souls of men that are around me. It's to pray, come now Lord Jesus even now. Establish thy kingdom on earth that there may be perfect harmony and unity with the holiness that is within heaven. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for a supernatural commitment. It is to commit ourselves, our efforts, our activities, our resources to the honor and glory of the Father that is in heaven. It is a prayer that signifies that our hopes and our dreams are fulfilled only in the soon coming of that great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a commitment. Thy kingdom come. Ah, oh, too often is it not. Our prayers are so full of self-saturation and self-ambition. When things do not go my way, when disappointments and failed expectation arises, I go to the Lord Jesus and have my little talk with Him and tell Him what He can do to fix my problems and fail to realize that He has a sovereign plan and that His will as the King of all the world is to rule and reign. And that my job is to submit and obey and recognize His kingship. Thy kingdom come. Francis Havergale, many years gone by, penned this hymn, Thou Art Coming, O My Savior, is the title of it. And note the third stanza, Oh, the joy to see thee reigning, 
Thee, my own beloved Lord, every tongue thy name confessing, worship, honor, glory, blessing. Brought to thee with glad accord, thee my master and my friend, vindicated and enthroned, unto earth's remotest end, glorified, adored, and owned. You know what she's signifying? Thy kingdom come. You and I are not individual kings. We are under headship of the God in heaven. And he rules and reigns. And of his kingdom there is no end. And we have a unique placement. By faith into the family of God. And we are heirs with him in Christ Jesus. And we are the sons of God and what beloved, magnifical, wondrous love has been bestowed upon us. And so that when we commune with the God in heaven, we pray thy kingdom come. Sometimes the king's decree for me may not be the joy of my heart at present notice. Sometimes in fulfillment of his will, I may not wish the same thing as the king of God would want. That's that supernatural side. Thy kingdom come. Impossible, perhaps, to have a biblically sound prayer without any consideration of God's kingdom. Now, I want you to think for a moment with me. Next week, if the Lord tarries, I want to look at this phrase, Thy will be done. What a powerful sentiment. It's the same that the Lord prayed in John chapter 17. He said, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, he recognized the Lord Jesus as part of the Godhead. That the matter of the kingdom coming of God demanded that he go through the passion and crucifixion for God's kingdom to come. My, if we could get hold of just a little bit of that in our own heart. Too often we become defeated when we've prayed about a matter and God has said no. We have failed to recognize that His kingdom coming is more important than some of the trivial things which we latch on with in life. And Paul, in speaking of some of these trivial things, he says, I count the suffering of this life very little compared to glory that shall be revealed in Him. Sometimes we've got greater concern about trivial things that bear no great importance and we fail to realize the great importance of God's kingdom and what His plan is beyond the redemption of plan but the establishment of a kingdom on earth like it is in heaven and it's in His timeline and our prayer and our focus and our hope and our ambition must be even come Lord Jesus. Supernatural conflict. Supernatural conversions. Supernatural commitment. Thy kingdom come. I stand with thee, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. 
and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.